All right, welcome to another episode of Dulas. Today we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. So, as we always do on this show, I will go right to defining what sovereignty is because I think nowadays, especially when there's a lot of words that are thrown around and we don't really we assume that people know what we mean when we say them, but in reality that they don't. We have different definitions. So, uh, I'm going to use the Merriam-Webster definition to define what sovereignty is. And here is one of the definitions that it gives. Supreme power, especially over a body politic. So, for example, like a king or some kind of monarch that has pretty much absolute power, his word is bond. Another definition that Merriam-Webster had was freedom from external control or autonomy. And we'll define what, what autonomy means in just a second. So God is omnipotent. That means all-powerful. Omni means all. Potent means power. So God is all-powerful. And, and do we really understand what that means when, when we're talking about God, the creator of heaven and earth? And so when Merriam-Webster brought up this word autonomy, uh, I wanted to look that up and, you know, to define what the word means so we can know exactly what we're talking about. And the word autonomy means self-directing freedom and especially moral independence and it's interesting that they added especially moral independence so if you are an autonomous person or autonomous country you are a law unto yourself and autonomy comes from the greek comes from two separate greek words greek words actually auto meaning self and namos meaning law so for example we hear the word autoimmune somebody has an autoimmune disease self-immune their body is pretty much attacking itself so they're they're immune to their own to their own self or automobile a car it goes on its own it's mobile on its own when you press the gas things like that and one of the final definitions that i thought was interesting to bring out was controlling influence regarding sovereignty so when we talk about god being sovereign it seems like it's a pretty self-explanatory thing this this shouldn't be a a, a an argument and there shouldn't be really any much disagreement on what sovereignty is and, and how much sovereignty God has because by definition you are God then you have all power you have all might you do whatever you want to do even in Judaism they believe God is sovereign Islam they believe God is sovereign and one interesting thing in Islam is that when you talk to some Muslims you'll talk about their eternal salvation or are they going to heaven will they go to heaven when they die and what they say is they don't know now I don't, for me when i first heard that from a muslim i was like wow i thought these were some of the most devout uh religious people in the world which i think they are but when i found out that they, they didn't they don't have any assurance regarding allah's which is the name of their god allah's acceptance when they die they they just say it's, it's based on his mercy hopefully he'll accept me and i just try to pray the prayers and obey the Quran and the Hadith and, and do whatever I can to be make sure that I, I'm, I will be acceptable to Allah. But even in their religion, it's still up to Allah. So no matter what you do, you still are at Allah's mercy. He can decide whether or not to accept you or not. So I thought that was interesting that even in their religion, that uh, Allah is, is autonomous and free to do what he wants, even for somebody's eternal salvation. So I want to discuss the different ways that God exercises his sovereignty in the universe. And 
I came up with five ways that I think the Bible describes in pretty good detail that God exercises his sovereignty. And the first one would be creator. And obviously, if you pick up a Bible and you start at the beginning, Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So, of course, God is creator. And he, everything we see, everything that we can smell, everything that we uh, observe out there in the universe and with the stars and the planets and the asteroids and, and the nebulae and all these things that we see in the universe through our telescopes and through our and being able to go visit uh, the moon or, or Mars, as they, they just landed another rover on Mars and things like that. Um, all that stuff was made by God. Exodus 4.11 says, And the Lord said unto him, speaking to Moses, when Moses was going back and forth and trying to get out of the responsibility that God had sent him to do to go bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses had said, well, I'm not really an eloquent speaker. I, 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 you know, he was trying to make all these excuses to get out of it. And God was saying, God told him in Exodus 4.11, And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? So God was asking, asking him a rhetorical question, saying, like, Moses, I know you can't speak well. But even further than that, who do you think made the people who can't talk, the people who can't hear, the people who can't see? Was it, is it not me? Everybody that comes into this world, whether or not they can see, whether or not they can hear, all of them were created by God. And even their, their, their limitations were set on them by God because God is creator. He creates all things and it doesn't matter what it is or how it comes into the world. That's how God created it. Exodus 20, 11, again, it says, For in six days for the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And just for, for a sidebar, when God was telling the Jews to, uh, when he was instituting the Sabbath for the Jews, he was saying that you're going to work six days, do all your labor, and then on the seventh day you're going to rest, your, your, even your animals are going to rest, your slaves are going to rest, everybody's going to rest on the seventh day. And just as a sidebar, when it comes to the creation debate about how long did it take God to create the world, I think it's pretty clear that when he told the Jews that you're going to work for six days, just like I worked for six days in creating the earth and then rested on the seventh, you'll work for six days and rest on the Sabbath. I think it's pretty clear that the same six days that God used to create the world is the same six days that the Jews now, even today, used for their barometer for, uh, for their Sabbath. They work six 24-hour days, and then they rest uh, uh, on the seventh day for 24 hours, or I think some of them do 20, 25 hours. So the six days there, there's, there's no difference between the six days that the Jews used to celebrate the Sabbath and the six days that God used to create the world. I think it's, it's, it's an inarguable point. But beside the fact, this is God again saying he made the earth in six days, heaven and earth, the sea, everything that we see, all the, the whales and the, and the fish of the sea. I and mean, it's a whole nother world down there. That's one place I would not want to be stuck in is, is in, in the middle of the ocean. Every time I see some random creature on the Discovery Channel or on YouTube somewhere, I'm like, wow, it's just, it's amazing the amount of things that guy can that guy created just within that six that six that six day time frame, but he's the creator of it all. First uh, Chronicles sixteen twenty six it says, "For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. There's no other god that created the heavens. There's no other god that created the the space and the and the stars and all that we see. God, the God of Scripture, He created it." Psalm 33, 6, again, it says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. So God made 
just by speaking, God created the world. Just by speaking, he said, let there be light, let there be creatures coming out of the sea, let there be a firmament in the midst uh, of, the, of the firmament and things like that. So God is the one who created everything that we see by his own power and just by speaking. He, and he's the only one that can speak things into existence like that. Isaiah 29, 16, for shall the work of him say that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it? He had no understanding. This is another rhetorical question that God is, is God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And this is to people who are out there talking about how God didn't create them or God didn't create the universe. And the Bible says to them, why is the thing formed saying that the guy who formed it didn't make him? By definition, you were formed. You're, you didn't make yourself. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a nonsensical position to make when people say the universe created itself. You have to have the power of being to therefore create something Nobody who has, you can't create something that doesn't have the power of being. So how can something that has no power, that didn't exist, create itself? But when by definition you have to exist to be able to create something. It's just, it's a foolish statement to make. So the Bible says, why is the, why is the thing framed saying to him that framed it, you had no understanding, you didn't create us. It, it's, it's a really foolish statement to make in, in, God's, in God's eyes. Isaiah 42, 5, it says, Thus saith the God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. God didn't just create the world. He spread it out. He spread forth the earth and the things that come out of the earth, all the things, all the things that we see and use today. I remember learning in college in our, in our energy class how uh, people that are in the oil industry, when they, they dig out oil and they use it for hundreds if not thousands of purposes and they, i think our teacher told us that about 70 percent of our products that we use today come from oil the phones that we use the laptops the tvs all the all those gadgets that we love and can't live without they come from oil they came from the oil that god created in the ground or some say it came from the flood um, when all the all the all the animals and the plants and was pretty much compressed underground and it kind of uh formed oil on the earth and that's what we use today that's why there's that uh, company called Sinclair and their logo is a big dinosaur because I think they or whoever started the company may have thought that some of the oil that we get comes from the dinosaurs um, Isaiah 45 7 this one really struck me when I was starting to understand the sovereignty of God it says I form the light and create darkness I make peace and create evil I the Lord do all these things God is not hiding the ball when when bad things happen in in life, um, ice storms or tornadoes or hurricanes. These are not random acts. Um, even when you look at insurance documents, they still have the phrase we can't account for acts of God or whatever terms of or conditions they have around acts of God. They put that in their in their insurance documents because and the way that they defined it, at least according to Alston.com, an, an insurance uh, company or some uh, lawyer site, it says that acts of God are all misfortunes and accidents arising from inevitable necessity, which human prudence could not foresee or prevent. So that means anything that happens that is called an accident or, or misfortune, it's, it's by definition an, an, an inevitable necessity, like it's going to happen. Hurricanes, floods, fires, they're going to happen regardless of what human prudence does, regardless of uh, what, what we can do. We can't foresee everything that's going to take place. 
So they call that an act of God because God controls the weather. God controls what happens in the universe. He made light. He makes darkness. He, ma he makes peace and well-being and prosperity. He makes evil. Now, I don't think this is moral evil. I think it's evil in the sense of when you would read the story of Job in Job 2 verses 9 through 10 when he had just suffered all this calamity all at once and his wife told him to curse God and die. And Job said this in response. He said, shall we receive good at the hand of God and not evil? So it wasn't anything. There wasn't anything necessarily morally bad that happened. Um, well, you know, I take that back because I think there was a group of people that came and attacked and stole his his flocks and his animals and attacked his servants. And one of them that came said I was the only one that that was that was left alive to come tell you. Um so, but it says that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And this is God talking. God said he's an upstanding man. He, and, and he didn't sin with his lips when he said, shall we receive good at the hand of God and not evil? And I think we have this prevailing notion out there where everything that good that happens in life is happening because we, because God, everything good that happens is because God is blessing us. And then when something bad happens, that's the devil that is, that is doing it. And the Bible doesn't really say it like that, though, because it says even even Job, one of the most righteous men in the universe, he didn't know that Satan had this conversation with God and, and God gave Satan permission to go and attack Job and his belongings. He just knew that God is sovereign, God's in control. And how can we get mad when God gives us good that we don't deserve and, and when he gives us evil when that's technically what we do deserve? Acts seventeen twenty four, when Paul was talking to the to the pagan uh, Greeks of his time, he said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. God is not a God that we can, it sounds stupid to say, but he's not a God that we can make out of stone or out of wood and put it in a building somewhere where we go and worship him. You know, we don't necessarily go to church to worship God. Just to, to say, and I'm saying that as in God's not just in the church building. I can worship him in my home. I can worship him in my car. I can worship him at work, wherever I am. God is. He's, he's not only omnipotent, but he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's ubiquitous. And so when we, when we, when we discuss God in sovereignty, the first way that he, that he is sovereign is as creator. And we'll take a short break and come back with the next way that God exercises his sovereignty. Now, the second way that God uh, practices or exercises his sovereignty in the universe is through being the sustainer of the universe. So he didn't just create the universe, he sustains it. And it's a good passage that God uh, is speaking to the second generation Israelites before they're getting ready to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 19. And I think it's an apt passage for especially America and other affluent countries today. And it's a pretty, it's a rather long passage, but I think I, I'll need to read it to get the full, the full, um, the full summary for it. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, and keeping and and not keeping His commandments and His judgments and His statutes which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. 
who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein there wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end and without and and thou say in thine heart my power and, and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. And I think by extension, that's true for us today. All the health, the wealth, the prosperity that we have today, that we enjoy today in America and, other country, and, and in other countries around the world that have uh, a lot of wealth, it's by God's grace. It's by his power giving us the ability to work, to innovate, to create all this wealth. And, 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 and be able to enjoy it as well. Uh, Nehemiah 9 verses 6 says, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. So heaven is kind of like where the, where the birds fly. And then the heaven of heavens is space, outer space. And then that's why it says with all their hosts, the stars, the moons, the suns, all that kind of stuff. The earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all. And the host of heaven worshipeth thee. So in that phrase there, it says, Thou preservest them all. It shows that God is the one who didn't just create these things, but he preserves them. He is the one that causes them to continue to exist in the universe. When things uh, cease to exist, like when there's a, a nova where, where there's a, a star that blows up or a supernova where a huge star blows up, that was the end of that star's life by God's power. God just decided to cause that star to, 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 exi- to stop to cease existing. But everything that we do today, I can't talk apart from the power of God. I can't move my hands. I can't drive. I can't think. I can't walk. I can't eat. I can't do anything. And nobody can do anything. It's not just limited to humans, but it's limited to the trees outside, the birds, even the outer space. None of these, none, none of these things continue to exist apart from the power of God because he is also the sustainer. And there's a Psalm, Psalm 104 verses one through 30. It talks about how God controls the water how God controls the water, how he ordains certain times and seasons of the year, and how he also provides food to animals and to human beings alike. Both animals and humans are dependent upon God to give us food. Now, of course, there are farmers that go out there and plant. They, they butcher animals. They give us meat to eat at the grocery store, and their animals go and hunt for their meals. But without God's power, without God's intervening, and without God's active work in the universe, we wouldn't be able to enjoy the food that we eat today, animals wouldn't be able to enjoy the catch of the day. You know, lions wouldn't be able to enjoy their 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 zebra or their antelope or whatever they caught that day. It's all provided by God's by God's provision. In Acts seventeen verses twenty five and twenty eight, Paul again talking to the uh, to the pagan Gentiles, he he says that God gives life to he, he giveth to all life, breath, and all things. So everything that breathes, everything that enjoys what we call life is given by God. And then Paul goes on to say that in him, meaning in God, we live and move and have our being. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on earth, we all continue to exist by the power of God. We don't have the luxury of saying, you know what, God, I don't want you to help me out today. I don't want you to give me strength or wisdom today. Because if he stopped giving you any kind of strength or any kind of life, you would cease to exist. You would just disappear. You wouldn't there would be there would be no no power for you to continue going because apart from God's power you die I die we are all dependent on God's power 
Colossians 1, 16 through 17, a, a very clear passage that, it's, that's talking about Jesus Christ. It talks about how Jesus himself is God as well. It says, for by him, meaning Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And I wanted to camp on that last phrase where it says, and by him, meaning Christ Jesus, all things consist. Again, all, everything, even the chair that I'm sitting on now continues to exist because of the power of Christ Jesus, because he's God in, in the flesh. I wouldn't be able to continue talking apart from his power. You know, the things that we just see outside standing like a billboard or a building or a warehouse or um, a card or a basketball, whatever we, we're looking at, those things aren't just held together by natural properties. I mean, well, they are held together by certain natural properties, but those natural properties are upheld by the power of God, by the power of Christ. So the third way that God exercises his sovereignty is by being the ruler. Psalm 115.3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. I think that is so clear. God is in heaven. God does whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants, when he wants. He is the one who has the absolute free will in the universe. And we'll talk about free will a little bit later. But some might say, well, God, it says that God does, that God is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. What about earth? Didn't God give earth to humans? Didn't God get, tell Adam that he should be fruitful and multiply along with Eve and, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that, that is on the earth? And which, which is true. That's what it says in Genesis 1. If God can do, can do whatever he wants in heaven, can he do whatever he wants in earth? Psalm 135, verse 6, whatsoever the Lord pleased... So whatever, whatsoever he desired to do, it says that did he in heaven. So we, you know, we talked about that in heaven. But then it says, and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. So God's not even limited just to the land. He's, he's also doing whatever he wants into, in the seas, in the deep, in the, in the oceans, and, and all those places that we can't even see ourselves. Everything that's taking place right now is happening because God is ruling and, and ordaining things that are taking place because it is his world. It's his earth. He has, again, he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He controls everything. Isaiah 37, 16, it says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. So even all the kingdoms of the earth. And now we're, now we're not just moving to the physical land domain of earth. We're moving to the actual rulership of of human beings in their respective countries, in their respective uh, tribal areas, or in their respective um, uh, 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 monarchies or, or, or kingdoms and things like that, or, and so those people are given the power that to rule by God. He rules in all their kingdoms as well. So whatever it takes place in the, in the kingdom kingdoms of men, he God is in control of because He's the Lord and He's the God of all those kingdoms. Isaiah forty seventeen it says, All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanities. You know, some people use that phrase, that guy is worth less than nothing. And that phrase comes from the Bible in relation to all the nations of the earth. So we think about the great nations, the Roman Empire, we think about the great uh, Greek Empire, we think about the, the British Empire, and now we think about America and, and China and Russia and all these great forces, all these, all these great countries with their billions of dollars spent on, on military defense and all their advanced weaponry and all their 
uh, spies and their their espionage and all these things that are happening to increase the power of nations and decrease the even the nuclear capacity of nations and people are you know just pretty much just bearing and, and, and stockpiling everything that they have to make, to increase their strength and, and their power and their might and the Bible says they're nothing all these things are to God they're nothing even less than nothing I don't know how you can be less than nothing but that's what the Bible says you can be the the nations are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity it's it's like it's a waste of time what are you even doing you can't you, you can't fight God you can't arm yourself up against God God will rule God will do what he pleases to do in heaven and in earth as we just read Daniel 2 21 it says blessed be the God blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his and he changeth the times and the seasons he removeth kings and setteth up kings so God is not just creator, he's not just sustainer, but he's actively involved in giving people the power to rule and, and then taking people from power and, and bringing them back to public life. For example, the big election that just took place with, Joe, with uh, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. Uh, president Biden now is president because God had ordained that President Biden win the 2020 election. Trump won because God had ordained for him to win the 2016 election, but... Trump did not win re-election because it was God's plan that Joe Biden come in to be president. He is the one who removes kings. He sets up kings. He removes presidents. He sets up presidents. That's God's purview. He's the creator. He's a sustainer. And he's the ruler. Daniel 4, verse 17, it says that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. So even you think, this, why is this guy in charge? He's, he's a fool. He's... He's not really literate. He's not really eloquent. He's not really with it. You know, he's not, he's, he's really an evil man. God, it says that God sets up even the basis of men, the lowest of men to be rulers over, over the kingdom and over the land. And I want to camp on this point because there was a belief uh, that, uh, de that God, that God was a, a deistic God. Almost, there was a, almost as if there was, and, uh, and the, the uh, deism is meant to mean that God created the world, but when he created the world, he didn't, he doesn't uh, continue to interact with it. He just created the world and was laissez-faire after that. He was hands-off. He just let it go and run its own course. But the Bible says the exact opposite. It says that he created the world and he continues to interact and even inter not just intervene, but control all everything that takes place in the kingdoms of the earth. <laughs> God doesn't just set up good rulers, he sets up bad rulers. So all those rulers in history that we know are terrible and are evil, God set them up and made them, and made them come to power. And he even let the good ones come to power too. He made the good ones come to power as well. And we see that even by Romans 13. It says the powers that be are ordained of God. We covered that in, our, in one of our previous episodes. So verse 25 of Daniel chapter 4 goes on again and says, Till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. God will give the kingdom to whomsoever he wants to give it to. Verse 32 again, it says, Until thou knowest the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. I mean, this is the third time in just one chapter that the Bible is stating that God gives the kingdom to whoever he wishes to give it to. So whoever is in charge, God for that moment in time has chosen to give that person the reins. Does that mean that God approves of everything that person does? No, of course not. God would be, that's not God's nature to approve of evil and iniquity. But 
as part of his plan, as, as part of his purpose, he allows and, and ordains that sin and evil exist and continue to exist because he has a, over, the overarching plan is the salvation of souls and, and through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Now, verse 35, it says in Daniel chapter 4, it says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, like we read in Isaiah. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say his hand or say unto, or say unto him, What doest thou? So we might think, God, what are you doing? Why, why, are you, why are you allowing this person in power? Why are you allowing this person to, to implement all their bad policies or their, or their bad ways? And, and even conversely, on the other side, when people are like, why are you, allow, why are you allowing this guy in office that, uh, that is supposed to be a, a Christian and is an implementing you know, Christian uh, policies and things like that? You know, this is this is bad. This is wrong. But it's saying that, hey, this is God's plan for now. We stick with it because, again, what are we going to do? We're going to tell God, don't do this. We're going to prevent him from from doing it. I mean, all those efforts will fail as we saw them fail to try to prevent Joe Biden from being president. It didn't it didn't happen because it was God's plan for Joe Biden to be president of the United States for the next four years. And as long as we and as long as we, the, soon, the sooner we recognize that, the faster we will be able to have more rest, more peace and more confidence in God and in his work. Because does he not know better than we know how to uh, how to run his own universe? Ephesians 111, it says him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So this is just reiterating that God works everything after his own counsel. He doesn't take counsel from men. He doesn't consult what he ought to do from men. He does what he wants to do. And that's what he's going to do, and nobody can tell him otherwise. So some might say, like in Second Corinthians four four, where it says Satan is the god of this world. So how can God be ruling the world if if Satan, the Bible itself says Satan is the god of this world? Well, Satan is the god of this world. Second Corinthians four four does say that, but it does say it with a with a lowercase g, not the God, the Yahweh of the world. And I would say, and so, yes, yeah, Satan is the God of this world, but he's, he's the God of this world by delegation, not by abdication. God did not give over all his authority, all his power, all his might. And God is just sitting in heaven and allowing Satan to run rampant and do whatever he wants to do. Because God is not struggling against Satan in the world. It's not like a, there's a cosmic battle between God and the devil. And they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, jockey one another and, and trying to get the upper hand of one another. God is, God is firmly established on his throne. There is nobody in in, in the history of the world, there's no force on earth or in heaven or in hell that could come against God and remove him one inch from his throne. He is firmly set on his throne and no one will ever remove him from his perch. So God is not re God is not even reacting against Satan's wiles. Now we down here are reacting against his temptations, his his false doctrines, his his attacks against our even our, our, our bodies, our uh, temptations to to go on with the world and things like that. But God is not reacting to those things. He has already ordained the end from the beginning. Roman or Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. So God himself is saying there are no other gods. So God is the only God by, by his own accord, by his own admission, by his own uh, uh, command. He says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times to things that are not yet done. So if God is declaring the end from the beginning, so before things even start, whatever is going to take place has already been declared. That tells you that God is in complete control of all the affairs of, of, of men 
and of the earth. And even Jesus talked about in the New Testament where he's saying that you, sh you ought not to worry about the things that you need, clothes, food, yeah, you know, place to sleep. He, when he tells his disciples not to worry, he even says that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the father. So even when birds, you know, fall out of the sky and die, or even that bird that got exploded, that exploded by Randy Johnson's pitch. It's a pretty crazy video when you, when you look it up on Google uh, or on YouTube and just type in Randy Johnson uh, pitch and you'll see that this bird literally exploded because of this, how fast the, the baseball pitcher threw the ball. So even that bird was ordained to be exploded, to be completely decimated by that, by that fastball during that baseball game. So none of, none of these things happen apart from, apart from God's power. And it, it goes on to say in, in Isaiah 46, it says, and, uh, and saying, my counsel shall stand. So God is saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So God is the only one that can say, I, can, I will do all my pleasure. There's nobody can stop God from doing what he wants to do. And it says, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I will. I, yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So when God purposes to do something, he will do it. And nobody can, can avert him or, or get him off of his path of what he wants to do. And I think we have to remember that the devil is God's devil. Martin Luther is credited with saying that the uh, 16th century reformer, German reformer, he's saying, he's saying that, that the devil is God's devil. The devil is not his own free spirit. He's not the one, he's not roaming around on the earth doing whatever he wants to do. The devil needs permission to act in the universe. And we see that in Job when he goes to God and he needs permission from God to act uh, to act on to act on Job in a in a very in a terrible way. So the next way that God exercises his sovereignty is by being the savior. So he's a creator, he's a sustainer, he's a ruler, and he's also the savior. Psalm verse eighty three times or Psalm chapter eighty excuse me Psalm chapter eighty three times in verses three seven and nineteen the psalmist prays to the Lord for Israel to be turned from their sin. So it's, it's an interesting prayer because he's saying that God turn us from sin, turn us from sin, turn us from sin. And you, you know, we tend to think that you know, we turn ourselves from sin and then we ask God to forgive us. But the psalmist is saying there that, Lord, turn us or else we won't be turned. We need your help to even turn us from sin. So God grants repentance. Second Timothy 2.25 mentions that, that God is the one who grants repentance to people. Whenever you see somebody truly repent from sin and put their trust in Christ Jesus, that is the act of God working on that person's heart. God has regenerated them by his own will because he is the Savior. Without him, we could not save ourselves. Without him, we wouldn't even want to turn from sin. We love sin. We love doing what is wrong. It, it feels good to us. That's why the world says, follow your heart, do what feels good, because that's what we are. We, we are sinners by nature, and we, and we love to we love to sin. Psalm 85, 85 verse 4, it says, turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger to, towards us to cease. So again, it says, God, please turn us. You are the God of our salvation. You are our, you are our only hope. Turn us and save us from, 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 from your anger. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So God is three persons. God is one being, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So if God is the one who turns people from sin to salvation, 
then of course his son would be doing the same exact thing. Jesus himself says, "He to whom he to whomsoever the son will reveal." So God, so Jesus chooses to reveal himself to whoever he chooses to reveal himself to. He's not obligated to reveal himself to everybody. He's not. He's not obligated to reveal himself to 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 even a singular person. Whoever Jesus has revealed himself to, that's who he chooses to do it. So that's who that's who he chooses to reveal himself to. And we are no one to 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 kick against that because he's the savior of all of us of us all. Mark four eleven through twelve it says, and he said unto them, Jesus Jesus talking to his his disciples again. He says, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. So a lot sometimes when Jesus was speaking, a lot of the parables they were hard to understand. They were hard to kind of really get at what Jesus was trying to say to them. But Jesus, for one of the reasons why Jesus spoke in parables was because it wasn't there, it wasn't given to the people that are without, without that are outside the kingdom of God to know what those parables were and what they meant. John six forty four, Jesus says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus himself is saying, No one can come to him. Nobody can come and and experience salvation without the Father drawing them. Now this is not the Father like kind of wooing him like a man kind of woos a woman. This is the this is like drawing water out of a well or like drawing a, a a you know taking a, a cup out of out of your cabinet. This is drawing somebody to himself by taking them by God being the one who has the initiative by taking his hand and pulling us out of a, of us drowning. And even that, uh, remember uh, Dr. James White has a good analogy, and he talks about how sinners are not out. If you were to take all the sinners in the world and put them in the ocean for an analogy. We're not, we wouldn't be splashing in the water asking somebody to come save us. He said, we, he said when Jesus came to save us, we would spit in his face and dive underwater, even though we're splashing and drowning. We'd rather spit in his face and dive than to grab the hand of Christ. If it wasn't for his regeneration, regeneration by the Spirit and changing our hearts to desire him, to want him, we would not want him. So we would, we would reject him. We would run away from him. The Bible says that clearly. And, of course, the classic passage on God's sovereignty and salvation is Romans 9. And I want to read the passage and kind of explain it in simple terms. Romans nine fourteen through 24, and it says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So it's not, so it's not us that desire God. It's not even us who are trying and trying to work so hard our way to get to heaven to be accepted by God. It's not of him that wills. It's not of him that runs, but God that shows mercy. He continues in verse 17. This is Paul writing. And he says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. So Pharaoh was a pagan ruler. He was a pagan king. But God is saying, I raised you up to become Pharaoh just for the purpose that I might show my power. You know, God made those the famous 10 plagues in Egypt, the, uh, the locust and the frogs and the blood and, and the darkness. And then it culminated with the, the with this, with the killing of the firstborn of not only humans, but of animals as well. But God said he did all that. He, he brought Pharaoh to power just for the sole purpose of showing his power that his name might be declared be declared throughout all the earth and now wherever our bible is his name is being declared 
and showing his power over the affairs of men. So even though Pharaoh was a wicked ruler, God is the one who raised him up to, to come to power, to show his might. So God reserves the right to bring wicked men to rulership and, and take down even good men from, from, from ruling for his own purposes. It continues in verse 18. It says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. So God even hardens sinners. So sometimes we're praying. We want people to come to faith in Christ. We want people to, to turn from their sin. We see people in the media and Hollywood and in politics that are just blaspheming God's name and, and doing all these things. And we're like, how can they continue to do this? Do they not know the danger that they are in? But some of those people, God himself has hardened and they will not come to faith in Christ for his own, for his own purposes. Chiefly, I, I would say to show his justice. And it says in verse 19, that would that would say then unto me. So, you know, this is like the, the guy arguing back with Paul. And he's like, wait a minute. The guy, this is the guy talking to Paul and saying, wait a minute. If God is hardening people, if God is hardening people's hearts like he did to Pharaoh in the Old Testament. If you go back and read the story, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart on purpose. Uh, but this guy is saying, if God is hardening people's hearts to not receive Christ, then Paul says, "Thou was thou will then say thou will say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Who can resist God? If God is going to harden my heart and I'm not going to accept him, then how can he blame me for my sin? How can he find fault with what I do if he's the one that's hardening hardening my heart?" And Paul says, "Nay, but oh man!" So he, it's kind of our a sarcastic way, of like, "Who do you think you are, oh man?" He says. Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto, unto honor and another unto dishonor? So Paul is saying, Who do you think you are? You know, you hear people talk like that when you, you somebody's like, somebody's just running their mouth for no good reason in the ear, and you know who, who they're running their mouth to, and you're like, This person has no idea who they're dealing with. It's essentially the same thing here. Paul is saying, but on, on, on an infinite scale, do you realize who you are talking to when you say, well, is God, why is God finding fault with me? We, we don't have the right to even question God. It is only God, by God's grace that we continue to live when we question his, his rulership and, and his salvific purposes. He determines who is saved. He determines who's not. It's up to him. It's his world. He created it. He does whatever he wants. We would never allow somebody from outside to come inside our own house and tell us how we ought to live, how we ought to arrange our furniture, how we how we ought to wake up at this time, go to bed at this time, you know, put on these kinds of clothes. We would never allow somebody to come into our own house to do that. How much more God? Are we we don't have the right to go out into his world and tell him how it ought to how it ought to operate or how we ought to save people? We are saved by grace. We are saved by mercy. We're not saved by our own merits. Nobody is saved by their own merits. We're saved by God's grace and, gra and God's grace alone. We don't have a right to question that. It, I mean, he's God. He could take you out and there would be, it wouldn't be, a, he could send you to hell instantaneously if he wanted to. And he would be just for doing so because you and I are sinners. We've broken his law. We don't have the right to question him. He's God and we're not. He's infinite. We're finite. Verses, uh, Paul continues in verse 22, as this is, and I think this is the ultimate answer for these kinds of questions. If God is hardening people, if God determines who's saved, who's not, why is he doing this? Why? That's not fair, like we like to say, as if we really want what's fair. Because if we got what was fair, we would all end up in hell. It says in verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, just like he did with Pharaoh, he, wanted, he wants to make his power known. Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted 
to destruction. So when, you, when we see people on TV blaspheming God's name, you know, praising abortion or praising homosexuality or praising, you know, perverse, uh, promiscuous lifestyles and thinking that this is the this is the way to go. When we see these kinds of things, God is enduring with much long suffering the vessels of wrath. You know, there's a uh, there's a there's uh, a YouTube video uh, talking about questions uh, with. I think it was R.C. Sproul and, and Bodie Bauckham and some other uh, major reform guys. And one of the questions, they were doing a Q&A session. And one of the questions was, if God promised death to Adam, uh, you know, why, why? I think the question was like, why did, why did, uh, why did God allow Adam to live if he, if he promised death or something to that effect? And R.C. Sproul, which I don't think I've ever seen him get angry at a question, but that question, for whatever reason that day, made him angry. He's like, who do you think you are? This creature from the dirt defied the ever-living holy God. And, oh, the pundit, he was, the guy that asked the question, he said, why was the punishment so severe? And R.C. Sproul was like, severe? This, guy, this creature from the dirt <laughs> defied the living God. And we're worried about the punishment being so severe? So severe? He's like, what's wrong with you people? He's like, what is wrong with you people? He got really exercised. I mean, and I think it was right to be so because why do we think that we deserve anything less than eternal conscious punishment in a lake of fire? You know, Paul writes in the New Testament, he says, what do you have that we have not received? Or what do we have that we have not received? Everything we have, this shirt that I'm wearing, the, the eyes that I have, the hands that I have, the family that I have, the, the money that I have, the job, everything that I have, I've received from God. I didn't, I didn't earn it on my own power, you know, like we read in Deuteronomy, that everything that I have is given to me by, by the power of God. So why do we get upset when we hear the Bible talk like this and, and act as if we deserve heaven? We don't deserve heaven. We deserve, the only thing we deserve is death. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, it didn't say the wages of God or the wages of man is eternal life. It says the gift of God. A gift is given just by, by, the, by the will of the gifter. So we don't deserve anything but God's wrath. So this is Paul saying, so God endures with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath. So those out there in the world that are not saved, that are hardening their hearts, like even God is hardening, he's enduring with them for a time to show his power, to show his justice, to show his wrath. And then in verse, in verse 23, it says, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, there's a lot to say there, there, but suffice it to say for now that there are vessels that are prepared for the wrath. There are vessels that are prepared for glory. Those that are unsaved and those that are saved. Those that will see and experience and enjoy God in His in His in His love and His grace and His mercy for eternity. And those that will just experience God's unmitigated wrath for all of eternity. And Paul finishes this section by saying, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So he's not just talking about Jews here as being hardened or being saved, but he's talking about the whole world. So Jews, the whole world is divided up in Jews and Gentiles. And so it's not just the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So there are some who are Jews and Gentiles that have been hardened. And then there are some that are Jews or Gentiles that have been saved and, and continue to be saved today and continue to be hardened today. James 1.18 says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The first 
part of that verse says of his own will. So this is by God's own desire that he begat us again with the word of truth that he, he, he caused us to be born again. And so I didn't have anything to do with my being brought into the world. That had everything to do with my parents. My son didn't have anything to do with him being brought into the world. That had everything to do with my wife and I, or me and my wife. So God's own will is that when he begets somebody, when he causes somebody to be born again, that's by God's very will. It's not by the will of the person who was running or who was trying or who said a prayer. It was by God's will that he caused this person to be born again. 1 John 2, 1 through 2, it says, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus, as the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, is the, as our advocate with the Father, whose laws we have broken. He, he is the righteous one, the one who never broke God's laws. But his sacrifice, he is a propitiation for our sins. The propitiation is just a big word, meaning the, the satisfaction. So, for example, um, when we, we, we got a house and we have a mortgage on the house, but when we finally pay off the mortgage, Lord willing, we will satisfy the debt owed to the mortgage company for the house that we have. So that will satisfy the debt and then we'll be free and clear from owning or owing the, the mortgage company anymore. So it's the same way here. Jesus is a propitiation for our sins as Christians, but then it says also for the sins of the whole world. So that's saying that the only way to have your sins satisfied or the payment for your sins satisfied is through Christ. He is the only way for to have your sins forgiven because he's a perfect sacrifice. He's the one that he's the only one that will be acceptable to, to the father. So he lived a perfect life. And so his life was worthy to die the perfect death so that that would satisfy the wrath of God against us as sinners once we repent and put our faith in Christ. So, but it's by God's own will that we are begotten and that, and that is by, and it's only through Christ that the payment for the sins can be satisfied. So we'll take a short break and we'll jump right back into the, to the, to the uh, sovereignty of God. So the final way that God exercises his Sovereignty is as the judge. Genesis 18.25, it says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This is Abraham talking to God in their dialogue before God goes in to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, like we talked about earlier. And Abraham already knew. He, was, he understood that God was sovereign as the judge, he, and he was the judge of all the earth. He's not just the judge of the Jews. You know, the Jews have their God that they're trying to appease the Muslims have their God that they're trying to appease, and then the, the Christians have the God have their God that they're trying to appease. Abraham and the Bible knows none of that. There's only one judge that needs to be appeased, and that is God the Father in heaven. And he is the judge of all the earth, and he will do right. Another verse that really struck me when I started reading the Bible and the sovereignty of God just seemed to jump out at me on, on almost over the whole scripture. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, this is God talking through Moses. He says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. So God here is saying openly and, just, and, and clearly that there is no other God. And as he, even he, that is the one that kills. He's the one that makes alive. He's the one that wounds. He's the one that heals. And there's nobody that can deliver out of his hand. So God is the one who kills. The Bible talks about God killing certain people because they were wicked in his sight. God is the one who causes people to come alive. Just like in the Old and New Testaments, people came alive. 
God is the one that causes wounding. God, God is the one that causes affliction. God is the one that causes even sickness and pain for his own purpose or his own will. Like I, like I said, again, when we get sick, that's not God. That's not the devil attacking us in, on, on his own autonomous will. If the devil had anything to do with it, the New Testament does talk about that there are some people that were oppressed of the devil, physically oppressed through, through sickness. But the devil can't do that without God's permission. You know, remember, the devil is God's, it's God's devil. But God is the one that wounds, and he's also the one that heals. And then he says, neither, neither, is, there any, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. And when you read the Old Testament, when he talks about the passages when, regarding murder or killing or manslaughter, um, it talks about how when you murder somebody, obviously the murder should be put to death, a sentiment that I think should be uh, continued today. And no matter what country in the world we are in, I think if you kill somebody, you ought to be put to death, including if you rape somebody as well. I think I also believe that and the Bible does say that a rapist should be should be stoned as well. Um, but when it talks about killing or murdering people, it, it also talks about manslaughter. And when it comes to manslaughter, uh, you know, like, for example, if somebody's cutting down a tree and then the axe hilt falls off the stem and it hits the guy and he dies. It doesn't just say that if by accident you're cutting down a tree and the axe head falls off and it, and it hit, kills a guy. It says that if the, if, if the guy dies, it's, it talks about the, the guy who dies. It talks about how God delivered him into the man who was cutting down the tree's hand, even though the man wasn't intentionally trying to kill him. It says God delivered him into that guy's hand. So that shows you that at least it showed me or, or to me, it shows that 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 even death by accident, manslaughter, things that people weren't intending to do to somebody and they ended up dead. It was God delivering that person into that person's hand, whether they intended to kill that person or not, because there's no accidents. There's no there are no uh, there are no mistakes in God's world when he's ordaining and, and controlling everything. Whatever happens is happening according to his will. Psalm 17, 13, it says, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. So if we think about all the, the wicked throughout history. The Bible is saying that the wicked is the sword of the Lord. That God uses the wicked to judge people that ought to be judged and who ought to be judged. All of us, we all ought to be judged. We all ought to suffer the same, the same fate. Proverbs 16, 4, it says, the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And again, that shows that God makes all things and all things are for himself and even including the wicked for the day of evil. So God is creating the wicked to use them for a day to cause calamity, to cause destruction for his own sovereign purposes. Matthew ten twenty eight, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to kill, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus is saying, you're not, you're not making any sense when you're fearing, fearing people that can only kill your body and it can't do anything after that. But fear the one who can, who can kill your body and cast your soul into hell. I mean, that's the one who we should, who we should fear. You know, there's an Old Testament passage that talks about how we should sanctify the Lord God, the Lord God in our hearts. Let him be your fear. Let him be, be your dread. He should be our, our fear because he's the one that can control everybody and can control uh, or can send our bodies either to heaven or to hell after we die. And we should especially fear him because he's the one that can cast our souls into hell for eternity. John five twenty two. Jesus again speaking here, he says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, 
So all the judgment that we see in the New Testament and that will take place has been committed to Christ. God, God the Father has handed all judgment over to Christ. So that's why he is the only way. And no man comes to the Father but through him. Nobody can come to him except the Father draws him. And Jesus will raise him up at the last day, as we read earlier in John six forty four. He's the only one that, have, that has the sole reins of judgment. That's why the Bible says multiple times and refers to Jesus as Lord, especially, uh, especially in the New Testament. Because he is Lord. He is Lord of all. He is the judge of all. And he, we will have to answer to him. All of us will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's no way around that because he is the judge. Christ Jesus is the judge. Second Thessalonians 1, 6-9, it says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's an important passage to kind of talk about a little bit. It says It doesn't say that in... He'll he'll take vengeance on those that know not God and those that just decide not to take him. It says it says those that do not obey the gospel is a command. It says repent and believe on Christ. It is it's not something that is optional. It's not something that you can say. Well, I'm just agnostic about it. I haven't really seen any evidence. The Bible has said that you have enough evidence. You have the law of God written on your heart. You have the nature. You have creation to look at to see the evidence of God's power and his and his invisible attributes. And you have the evidence of God, of Jesus being risen from the dead through the revelation of Scripture. So you have enough evidence. And the Bible says it is a command. You have to obey the gospel of Christ. Or if not, you will just suffer the vengeance, the fiery vengeance of Jesus himself once he comes back with his mighty angels to take vengeance on you for not obeying his gospel. And it says, who shall, not, who shall be punished? These people that re refuse to obey, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So you will suffer an eternal destructive fate if you don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, God is judged in reference here. We have Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. This is the final, the final destination, the final judgment for all of us. You want to know what happens in the future? The Bible tells us plainly here, plainly here and it says, Revelation twenty eleven it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So those that have died and gone on before us, they, their works have not disappeared. Their works have been written down. Everything that they've said, everything that they've thought, everything that they've done, it will be exposed for the entire world to see. Everything that everyone has done, I think, will be exposed for the entire world to see. And then it says in verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. So if somebody drowned or somebody was cast into the, cast into the sea, their body was cast into the sea, the sea will give up all those that are at the bottom of the ocean to stand trial for judgment for judgment for all the things that they've done in their body and then it says in death and hell were delivered and death and hell de delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works now this is just a sidebar in my understanding it looks like hell seems to be the like for example when if i were to commit a crime and get arrested 
before standing trial, I would have to stay in jail or I could pay the bail and be out on bail. But if I were in jail, I would have to wait, wait in jail, wait for a trial to be uh, to be dated so I can appear in court for the trial. And then my sentencing would send me to prison. So my understanding, hell is just the jail that people are in right now. Now, they're still suffering because obviously being in jail is not fun. You can't go anywhere. You can't do what you want. But hell is far worse. And, and hell is is a place where people are in jail wait, awaiting to stay in trial before the final the final sentence is 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 hammered down on them. And it says in death and hell were cast and uh, it says death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works. In verse 14, it says in death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire so the lake of fire is the final destination for those who are in hell those who are or who are in hell were refused to obey the gospel of christ and now they are they are just awaiting trial to be exposed for the evil wretched sinners that they are and then they'll be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity and that's how god exercises his sovereignty as judge he must be obeyed now some might say well what about free will don't we as humans have free will can't we you know, do what we want. Can't we, you know, choose God or not choose God of our own autonomous, autonomous free will? My pastor has a good quote about about man's free will. I think, uh, and I want to bring out here, Pastor Doug from Grace Community Church. He says, "Man does have free will, but he says God has more. <laughs> so we may have free will. We may, you know, choose what we want to do here and there. But again, our wills are limited to God, who has the ultimate free will in the universe." So we all choose what we want to do. Like for example, I you know I can choose to do this podcast. You're choosing to listen or watch the pod, to listen to or, or watch the podcast. Uh, you choose to eat. You choose what clothes you wear, what job you have, who you're married to, things like that. We all choose those kinds of things. Even in dire circumstances, if somebody were to come up to me on the street and put a gun to my head and said, "Your money or your life," now obviously he's kind of restricted my choices down to two. Or maybe three if I want to fight back. Uh, however, I still have the ability to choose whether or not to give him my wallet or to take my chances with a gunshot. Um, but the Bible talks about our wills regarding our, 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 our wills to do what is evil. Our, our, our wills are bound to do what is evil. In Luke, Luke 11, 13, Jesus said, if ye then being evil, Jesus talked to us and said that we as humans are naturally evil. Our wills are evil and desire to do what is wrong. And even after the flood, God talked about how uh, he would never destroy the earth again because the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So from a babe, even David talked about how in iniquity my mother did conceive me and it talks about how the wicked as soon as they come out of the womb they come lying you know we don't have to teach our children to lie to steal to, to complain to whine they come out naturally doing these things because they come from us and because we come from adam who's our who's our federal head but can, uh, regarding our will romans 8 6 through 8 it says for to be carnally minded is death so to be fleshly minded worldly minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So if you want life and peace, you need to have a spiritual mind, and in particular, a spiritual mind that is saturated with the word of God. And then it continues, it says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind, the fleshly mind, hates God, is, 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 is God's enemy. It's inimitable against God, or inimical against God. 
And, and then it says, for it is not subject to the law of, of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you're, our wills are bound. You know, Jesus said that we are slaves of sin. He, who, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And that's what Paul reader reiterates here, that the fleshly mind is not subject to the law of God. And, and furthermore, it's not it's not that it's not subject. It's that it can't be subject. Those that are flesh, we can't please God. Jesus, our God says in the Old Testament, even our filth, our, even our, our, our good works are filthy rags before God. So we can give all our money to charity. We can give all our time to help young children, you know, learn how to read. We can go to third world countries and build wells and 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 do all these humanitarian things that are good that are helpful to people but as far as earning favor with god they mean nothing because they're tainted with with sinful hands a good analogy that tom Friel uses and when he's evangelizing he talks about how would you take flowers from hitler or from mussolini or from a guy who you know caused and wrecked havoc in your life would you take flowers or, or chocolates from that guy? And of course you wouldn't because this guy's hands are tainted with blood or tainted with evil and he's done evil acts. And why would you want to be, why would you want to accept some good from him when he's done so much evil in your life? It's the same with us. Why would God want to accept us and accept our good works when we have blasphemed his name, when we've lied, when we've fornicated, when we've, when we've done all these things that are evil in his sight? So... If repentance and faith in Christ are pleasing to God, then it is impossible to exercise both in the flesh. And I think that's pretty cut and dry because Paul says they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But if repentance and faith are pleasing to God, then it is impossible to do those while we're in the flesh. We can't do that in the flesh and our, will, our wills are bound unless we have a savior who can deliver us and set us free. That's why Jesus said, he whom the son sets free is free indeed. And of course, you know, how can God hold us responsible since he controls everything? And we read that in Romans, Paul says that, who are you to reply against God? You have no right to question God's, the way that God runs the universe. You just have to accept it for, the, for what the scripture reveals and, and not think that you have the right to, to even think that God is doing it the wrong, as if you know right from wrong without God's objective standards. Now, this may seem difficult to accept, but this is... The foundation of Romans eight twenty eight, a verse that I think every Christ, every Christian loves and holds on to, which says that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So the the sovereignty of God is what anchors us in this promise from Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good. That no matter what happens in life, if we lose all that we have, if we lose even our lives, the Bible says that the 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 death of the saints is precious to the Lord. You know, Paul even said that it's far better to depart and be with Christ than to stay here on earth. You know, so, you know, that's why Jesus said, don't put your, don't, you know, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven and not on earth because why would you want to stay in a, in a world that is sinful, that is, that is evil, full of temptation, full of destruction, when you can go and be, go and be with, with him in heaven. And that's where our final destination will be as Christians. So this is the sovereignty of God is, 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 is the foundation of that Romans 8.28 is built upon. It's the foundation of the promises of God in Christ. You know, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 1.20, that the promises of God, all the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen. They're, they are faithful, they are true, and they will be accomplished because God is sovereign. 
uh, our eternal salvation. The Bible says in John three sixteen that uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Not temporal life, not temporary life, not life unless you sin, not life unless you do a, a, a mortal sin or a grievous sin that God can't forgive. That's it, the being a Christian is for eternity. That's why it's called eternal life. You can never lose it because God is sovereign. God will preserve you until the end. That's why Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the father with which I sent me draw him. And then it's, it's it, it ends by saying, and I will raise him up at the last day. So if you come to Christ, if God draws you to Christ, Christ will raise you up at the last day. You will never fall away. You can't fall away because God is holding you in his hand. Jesus said, no man can pluck you out of my hand. And then Jesus himself said that my, I'm in my father. And so nobody can pluck you out of my hand or my father's hand. It's impossible. Who can pluck you out of God's hand? Are you going to say you yourself will jump out of, out of Christ's hand, out of God's hand? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> why would you want, first of all, why would you want to jump out of a perfect Savior's hand? When he loves you so perfectly, when he provides for you, when he, when he, has, when he has cleansed you of every sin, I mean, when he has paid the penalty for you, when he has promised you eternal life, why would you want to leave? That's such a, you'd be a fool to leave. Uh, our existence is based on the sovereignty of God. We don't continue to exist. We can't enjoy life. We can't uh, enjoy the, the good things that God has blessed us with without God's sovereignty, without him holding us and keeping us in existence. And most importantly, I think something that really helped me understand and really take pleasure in God's sovereignty is that the judgment of the wicked. When you think about all the, the evils that take place in society, I remember looking up a stat from the from the FBI, this is just within the United States, and this is just what obviously is, is what reported. We don't know about what we don't know about regarding just rape in in the United States. I think it was about ninety six thousand uh, rapes were reported in the U.S. in I think it was twenty sixteen. So if you do the math, it went out to like uh, I think it was about, I don't know, maybe six to ten rapes every every hour or some obscene number every hour that somebody is being raped in this country. And that's just what we know about. We don't know what we don't know about, obviously what, what goes on, what goes unreported. But the fact of the matter is that nobody will ever get away with murder. I know we hear people say, oh, he got away with it or he's gonna get away with it. There's no such thing as getting away with something in God's world. Nobody will get away with any sin, the slightest sin or the things that we think are slight sins, nobody will ever get away with. God will have his day in court with each and every person. Nobody has the luxury of saying, well, God's not going to see me. He's not going to see this. I'm, I'm in the dark. I've, I've covered my tracks pretty well. You know, there's that saying where, well, this guy knows where all the bodies are buried. Well, God knows where every single body is buried. God knows every skeleton in every closet. God knows every idle word that was spoken, whether, whether publicly or, or privately, every form of gossip, everything that was done in darkness, it will come to light and everybody will be exposed for the sinners that they are. And when God judges the wicked, nobody will ever get away with it in God's world. And finally, I want to end on the quote of the day, talking about God's sovereignty. R.C. Sproul, a man who I love and, and, and missed when he died uh, and continue to miss. And But Thank God for the advent of technology. We're able to listen to him on Renewing Your Mind or on YouTube and listen to his lectures and his sermons. But he made a quote that is, that's always stuck with me where he, where he said, If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. 
And I think that perfectly sums up the sovereignty of God. If God does not control all things, if he is not the savior, if he's not the judge, if he is not the ruler, if he is not the creator and the sustainer of all life, then he's not God. I mean, by definition, if you are a God, you are in charge. You own everything. You can do whatever you please. And that's what he does. So I, I love that quote from R.C. Sproul. And I, and, and I think you should, too. It's, it's, a, it's a great quote. So take heart that God is sovereign. And if you are saved, take heart because God will see to, the, see to it that you will uh, make it to heaven no matter what. And if you are not saved and you have not repented and put your trust in Christ, if you have not obeyed the gospel at First Thessalonians has said, then you should shudder. You should, you, should, you should be in terror for your life because Jesus said that God has the power to throw you and your body and your soul into hell, into a lake of fire for eternity. That will be your final destiny if you don't repent, turn from your sins, and trust in Christ Jesus to be saved because God is sovereign and he rules and he reigns and will continue to reign whether you continue to exist in heaven or you continue to exist in hell. So we will see you next time in the next episode of Be Lost.